Hello, gorgeous. Welcome to The Ambitious Woman, the bold career, finance, and life advice podcast and trainings for busy, ambitious corporate career women. I'm your host, career advisor and coach and investment expert, Danielle McDonald, coming to you from the Pacific Northwest. Now, our goal here at the podcast is to hopefully leave you a little happier or smarter at the end of each show, delightfully distracted from your commute, tasks, or workout. All a challenge when you are so amazing already. So we open each show with a bit of career or financial or life advice, followed up by a thoughtful or even fascinating interview with unique up and coming business leaders, notable experts, and people with interesting perspectives on life, finance, and business. So if you're ready, let's go. Hello there. So we're talking today about one of the manifesto statements of the ambitious women. Now, years ago, when I was young, just out of high school, I was working for a corporation uh, that had recently merged with another big company and the managers just hated the merger. They were miserable. They didn't like the change in rules. They didn't like the change in policies. They didn't like the change in pay. And understandably, right? Um, but the head of the company brought everyone together in uh, an auditorium in Toronto and had a speaker come out on stage. And that speaker walked out and said, if you hate your job, you should quit. But then he went on. If you quit your job and you end up in a job that you love, you've won. If you hate the job that you quit and you end up in a job that you hate just as much, you haven't lost anything. So really, there's no risk to leaving a job you're unhappy in. Now, there are tricks to it. Leaving your job the right way and landing your new job the right way. Well, that's where I come in as a career coach. But just think of it this way. If you are heading out on your own and you want to find your dream job, find a way into the kind of um, level or position that you aspire to and you need the toolkit to get you there, then that's where things like mental capital and relationship capital come into play. So an exercise that you can think about as you're driving or working out, whatever you're up to, what are you good at? What's your mental capital? What are you passionate about? That's mental capital too. What skills do you have? Maybe you're not passionate about them, but what skills do you possess? So what are you good at? What are you passionate about? And what skills do you have? And then there's your relationship capital. And you know how they say the time to plant a tree is either 20 years ago or right now? The time to plant the tree for your relationship capital is right now. So we'll talk in the in the podcast about networking skills. It'll be part of the program that I offer. Um, we have some experts who have incredible, incredible networking advice that's the antithesis of the gross networking that you think of when you think of networking. But your relationship capital, who are the 10 people, 10 people that could help you get closer to your goal? Do you know who they are? Do you know how to approach them about helping you with your goal without sounding 
sort of self-serving. We're going to talk about that too. But anyway, today what we're going to be talking about is stress and burnout, because that's really what can make us hate our job more than anything else. Stress and burnout um, and depression. Depression can look like burnout. They are distinct conditions, um, but one can boil over into the other. Stress and burnout um, and mental health issues, physical health issues, are what we're going to be discussing today with Delia McCabe. So I'll introduce her in a moment, but in the meantime, think about it. What's your mental capital? What's your relationship capital? What are you bringing to your next job search? All right, talk to you soon. Hey, just a quick note. Each episode of The Ambitious Woman is sponsored by Unbound Women, healthy body and mind specialists who created a three-step system that helps busy women manage their gut pain and overwhelms so they can calmly and confidently enjoy life without years of therapy or meditation apps. More information and their link are in the show notes for today's episode at theambitiouswoman.com. show today, Dr. Delia McCabe. She's a stress resiliency consultant focused on the intersection of neuroscience, psychology, and nutrition. So she's a neuroscientist. She also is a keynote speaker and an author. Her books are available on Amazon everywhere. The first is Feed Your Brain, Seven, Seven Steps to a Lighter, Brighter You. And the second book is Feed Your Brain, The Cookbook. And we'll talk about why that cookbook is necessary as we launch into the conversation. Dr. McKay, welcome. Thank you for the invitation, Daniela. I'm delighted to be speaking to you. Likewise. It's a delight to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to today? And excuse the dog, I'm sorry. Oh, with pleasure. Well, it just shows he's also engaged and involved. He wants to say something <laughs> too. Uh, my, my journey, yes. It's, it was an interesting journey because I started out wanting to be a talking therapist. I wanted to help people talk themselves better. And I think that grew out of a challenging childhood where I didn't understand why people were doing what they were doing. So I thought if I could understand them, I could talk them better. So I, I, it, it was a weird situation because I was working with a group of really smart school children and many of them were doing really poorly at school. Now, these are kids the ones whose parents and teachers are always complaining about. You could do so well. You could be getting A's. Why are you flunking? And I was working with them to figure out what the psychological variables were related to their underachievement. And I was looking at psychological issues related to this. And fate is a weird thing because I had a bit of extra space on one of the questionnaires that I had developed for them. And I thought, let's just ask them about what their favorite food is. And I think it probably stemmed from an involvement with a very good friend in a new restaurant. And I was obviously thinking about food and it was top of mind for me. So I thought, let's just ask these kids this question. And Daniel, it's very seldom in research where there's a very clear distinction between two groups. But in this instance, my experimental group, that's the kids who are not doing well, but who were very smart, all of them love junk food. And my control group, which were the smart kids who were doing well, didn't love junk food. And it was such a clear distinction that I thought to myself, wow, 
there must be something to this. I need to investigate this. So I finished my thesis. And um, once again, fate stepped in because I was very pregnant with my first child. And I thought, I'll take a little bit of time and I will check this out. Does it really, is there really anything to this food in the brain? And look, this is 25 years ago. So I'm really dating myself. But I then fell into this huge, big hole of wanting to find out more about this and not finding a lot of information. So I'd go to the university library. I'd take out a book. Maybe there'd be a sentence, a paragraph in the book. I tracked down a researcher. Maybe they wrote a paper and they had one sentence about this topic. And I became very frustrated. But eventually I found people that were looking at this and were investigating it. And our technology has advanced so wonderfully that we can now look at what's going on inside a living brain. And we can see what happens when the brain's blood glucose level dips. We can see what happens in the brain in terms of energy when we are focusing on memory or focusing on learning a new skill. So we now have all of that capacity available. And so the field has grown. And I just decided that I couldn't be a talking therapist anymore. For me, it felt like I wasn't being honest, which, which is a weird thing to say, because I know that lots of psychologists, you know, see themselves as being honest. And it's not about the fact that they don't have skills. But just for me, when I opened that door to yes. the fact that the brain really runs on what we feed it, it was like, I didn't want to say to people, what was your relationship like with your father or whatever? I wanted to say, what did you have for breakfast? And that changed <laughs> the whole narrative. And so I decided to then investigate this topic. And it led me to do a PhD focused specifically on female stress. <laughs> wow. And it, it, yeah, but it all underpins this idea. And this, the fact that we now have is that all of our thinking and our behavior change and our emotions are all um, sit on this huge framework, this huge network of cells and chemicals and membranes and molecules, all of which depend on our lifestyle choices, primarily food, you know, initially. And then obviously from that stems our capacity to sleep well and also to move well. And then that from there stems the kind of habits we create the kind of behavior change we're capable of making and so on. So for me, that was a, it was really a no-brainer. Excuse the pun. I just couldn't <laughs> go back to trying to talk people. Well, I thought if your brain is malnourished, people can't execute change. How can you action things when you're working with a, a system that isn't functioning optimally? So that's basically my background, Danielle. So you, on your author profile on Amazon.com, talk in a video about how stress robs the body of nutrients. Can you talk more about that, please? With pleasure. I think for me, it's been an interesting journey because I thought it was self-evident that people knew that adrenaline and cortisol need nutrients to be synthesized. But the more I spoke about stress resiliency, the more I realized that most people don't think about what adrenaline and cortisol need to be created. They just don't happen out of the ether. They're created in our body. They're compounds that are created using nutrients. And when I realized that, that was the case, I thought I need to tell people more about that. So now when I do in-person workshops, I've got a slide and I show people the nutrients that are required to make adrenaline. And suddenly they sit up because the next slide shows them that those are the same nutrients we need to make energy. 
And they're the same nutrients that we need to make things like serotonin and GABA. So the challenge we have as human beings living in a world where stress is rampant is that adrenaline and cortisol are survival hormones. So our body basically doesn't have a choice in relation to making those compounds. Because if you're being chased by a tiger, it's not as if your physiology says, well, you actually need a nap now. Just have a little nap first and then <laughs> escape the tiger. It really doesn't work that way. We have to run away from that tiger regardless. And if we're eating a nutrient deficient diet, the nutrients that we have will go for survival, which is adrenaline and cortisol synthesis. There will be none left over for serotonin. So when people tell me that they get into bed at night and they're exhausted, but they can't sleep, it's a clear indication to me that they are now depleted of nutrients because you need nutrients to make serotonin. And then, of course, you need more nutrients to make melatonin, which induces our sleep. So the nutritional cost of stress is something that most people do not take into account, which is why I spoke about it in that video. I really want people to be aware of the fact that this ongoing chronic stress doesn't just deplete our body of energy and our mental well-being. It really depletes us at a very basic cellular level of nutrients that we need to function optimally. Can you talk about the role of serotonin, melatonin, GABA, the ones that you mentioned, just so people have some context in case they're not science buffs? With pleasure, Daniel. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter that is very important for the brain to be able to feel calm, at ease, safe, and secure. And we now know that upwards of 85% of the serotonin that circulates in our body is actually created in the gut. And um, we call that peripheral serotonin. There's a different kind of serotonin that's created within the brain. It's also got very similar roles to play. Now, if we can think about a neurotransmitter like serotonin, let's think about it as a way for cells to communicate with each other. And it's the communication occurs in an electrochemical way. So serotonin is a compound made up of certain things, <laughs> certain compounds, and it then goes down from the neuron where it is synthesized or where it is activated, travels down the neuron on an axon to reach the next neuron and leave a message there. So that's what serotonin does. All neurotransmitters, they work in the same way, but they've got different actions. The challenge with serotonin is that it's involved in so many different things. There's a funny saying that researchers say about serotonin. It's involved in everything, but responsible for nothing. And that's like a way to explain serotonin. <laughs> um, so people talk a lot about serotonin, but it's a very complex compound. And I'll give you a little bit of an idea about its complexity. If we think about antidepressants, and specifically antidepressants that target serotonin. People sometimes take these antidepressants but don't feel better. They actually end up feeling more anxious and more distressed instead of the opposite. And we now know why that is the case because serotonin has 14 different kinds of receptors. That means 14 different little places in the brain where they, serotonin can lock in. And some of those receptor places code for reducing anxiety, and some of those receptor spots code for increasing anxiety. So serotonin is a very complex neurotransmitter, and it, it's basically trying to keep a balance in the brain. 
It's trying to make sure that we settle down and go to sleep when it's time to do that. And that's why it's the foundation for melatonin, which is the hormone that kicks in when we go to sleep, when it gets dark. Now, just as an aside, if we spend our lives on our screens, watching Netflix until late, then on our phones, we don't as allow, we do. <laughs> which is what people are doing today because they don't really understand. And also because people are stressed and it's a way for us to manage our stress, or we think it's a way to manage our stress. We don't actually allow serotonin to step in and melatonin to step in. And then adding insult to injury, if we don't have the nutrients required to actually create serotonin, then it can't do this wonderful balancing act in the brain that it needs to, that it needs to perform. So it's a very powerful neurotransmitter. It also regulates our appetite. So it'll tell us when we're satisfied and we've eaten enough food. It'll tell us when we're hungry. And so in that way, it actually works with our metabolism and with our weight maintenance. So it's, it's complex, it's beautiful, but it can't do its job properly if we're always stressed and using up the nutrients, and it also can't do its job properly if we're on our screens all the time. GABA is another neurotransmitter, so it's also involved in looking for balance, and it tries to keep us calm and peaceful and able to rest and digest our food and just settle down into being calm. That's basically what GABA does. But once again, it's got a balance. It's trying to keep within that brain the balance between serotonin and GABA. And then we've got another one called dopamine, which wants to do the opposite. It excites us. It gets us enlivened. It gets us excited. So now we've got all this balancing trying to happen in the brain between all these neurotransmitters. And we have many of them. But serotonin and GABA are specifically important in relation to women, Daniel. So if you want me to unpack this for a moment, I will do that happily. Yes, I would love to hear about women's special need for nutrition to deal with stress. I think just to discuss serotonin and GABA first, one of the things that most people are not aware of, and specifically women I have found, is that serotonin and GABA are linked to estrogen and progesterone, respectively. So... Every month, if we're still in reproductive age, our estrogen and our progesterone fluctuates. And as those hormones fluctuate, so too do serotonin and GABA, which is why some women will notice that when they get into the phase of these hormones shifting, you know, for example, premenstrual, they can eat a box of chocolates they can never feel satisfied. They don't sleep properly. They feel cranky. They just don't settle. This is because serotonin and GABA are also now fluctuating. So when I do in-person workshops or webinar trainings, I've got a slide and I show women, you know, how these hormones are fluctuating and they go, wow, now we understand because while the hormones are fluctuating, the brain is also shifting and changing. So if we have challenges with our hormones, it's completely natural for us to also have challenges with being able to feel calm and secure and safe and so on and so forth, simply because these hormones reflect the neurotransmitters. So unfortunately, stress makes it worse because stress doesn't just use nutrients for adrenaline and cortisol synthesis. Stress also uses the nutrients for that, instead of creating hormones, because nutrients are also required to actually synthesize the hormones. 
So then if we're not eating really well and our diet is not optimal, it's not nutrient dense, and we're not supplementing with the right kind of supplements that have an evidence base, then we find that around certain times of the month, we're completely emotional and we really can't cope. We don't think creatively. We just don't sleep well. Our moods are affected. We want to eat everything in sight. Or some women actually lose their appetite. So there are definitely variations. But that's extremely important to keep in mind because stress depletes the nutrients, not just because of synthesis of adrenaline, but also because of hormones and so on. So it's an important thing that I try to get women to understand, Daniel, because if you don't know what you're dealing with, you can't change it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, this is something that is really important for women to understand. And I think women have also had a time where we didn't want to admit that our hormones affected us. And I think I'm hoping that we're getting past that time because the evidence is very clear that during that time where our hormones fluctuate, there can also be time for great creativity and for clarification of ideas. So it's not as if it's all a bad news story. These fluctuations in hormones and neurotransmitters can actually serve us in some ways as well. So we need to focus on the good news as well as the bad news and just focus on the fact that we are, you know, wonderful creatures that have the capacity to sometimes be moody and sometimes just say exactly what we want to say because we've been holding it on for a couple of weeks and now we can say (laughs) say that thing we've been holding on to. So I think we need to let go of trying to be these creatures that don't have these fluctuations. Men are different because their testosterone slowly decreases over a lifetime. Whereas for us, we're blessed with having these up and down hormones, which can give us some insight into what we're doing well in our life or not. So I often say to women, if you're finding that your hormonal cycles are really a challenge and you're really not coping, it's a sign that something else is is wrong. You know, the whole, you need to look at, at, at your holistic health if your hormones are really a challenge. It's not just about taking a hormone replacement. There are other things to to consider as well. So it's a bit of a complex discussion. I'm sorry. No, that's fantastic. And that's exactly what we're looking for. We're trying to understand how to take care of ourselves, right? The best self-care is nutrition and the reduction of stress, I think. Um, Or it's a fundamental place to start, put it that way. Emotional self-care, when your emotions are affected by your nutrition, go hand in hand. So Absolutely. And something else which I think is important to mention here is that our feelings travel three times faster in our brain versus our thoughts. And this is obvious in terms of a survival mechanism. You couldn't be walking down the path in the jungle and then think about the possibility of a tiger. You actually had to act on a feeling before the thought stepped in. But what happens today when we are really busy, when we're really stressed, when we're struggling with that juggle, we end up having our feelings dictate what we do because they arise first. So it's like we're on the back foot all the time and that thinking creatively and constructively and collaboratively gets second place because we're always responding to that feeling of anxiety and stress and what's next and can I cope and I've got too much on my plate and I feel overwhelmed. So when we can make sure that we're nourishing the central nervous system really optimally, we then have the capacity to have our feelings more in check and our thinking can then take first stage. 
That's just brilliant. And how did this evolve for you in your own life? Well, it's a really good question. And for me, I experienced adrenal exhaustion probably about 12, 13 years ago. Oh, wow. And it was a very distressing experience because I thought with a psychology background and then the background in nutrition that was growing, that I could avoid this. And when it hit me what I actually had, I had a really interesting chat to myself. And uh, (laughs) sometimes these moments lead to deep reflection and introspection, which is good if you can then take that knowledge and then action it, you know, what you're learning. And I really came to the conclusion that Adrenal exhaustion and burnout are actually symptoms of a personality disorder, primarily. And I actually opened a workshop a couple of years ago with that statement. And I had the woman in the workshop look at me in horror. And I was just quiet. And I said to them, I know that you've come here to learn how to feed your brain, but we first need to discuss something more important right now is because the reason you got to the stage of adrenal exhaustion and burnout is because you're the kind of personality that keeps on pushing. You keep on driving, even when you know you're exhausted, even when you know you should have a nap, even when you know you should go for a walk without your phone and without listening to a podcast, even though all those things, you keep on pushing, thinking that if you tick one more box, you can stop. And you never do until you're too exhausted to think properly. And it was truly amazing because I had women in that audience that they, many of them started crying because for the, yeah, because they actually recognized for themselves the truth that they were unfortunately pushing their exhaustion because they weren't listening to what their body was saying. So that's what my adrenal exhaustion taught me, Danielle. And so now I know what the warning signs are and I know that I'm basically wired to get yes. Adrenal exhaustion. Yeah. And I think many of your audience may recognize themselves as well. You know, because- the ambitious women, yes. We go farther than we think we can, but we do it sometimes at the expense of a normal pace of life. Absolutely. And we do it because we keep on thinking that there'll be time to rest later and that we can recover. And the challenge is, and I have to be 100% honest here, is that when you've had one bout of adrenal exhaustion, you set yourself up for the next one if you don't deal with it properly. Uh, Because the personality will say, okay, I've got this horrible thing now. It's been diagnosed as adrenal exhaustion or burnout. Even if you don't have it diagnosed, you you know that you really need to do something. And so most women stop, take a little break, or try to take a little break while they're still juggling, and then get back on the treadmill again too quickly. And they also don't know how to make sure that their diet is optimal to cope with this to make them stress resilient. And they also don't know what dietary supplements to to consume. And we can touch on that a little later. But the challenge is if you don't actually address it, you end up perpetuating it and it becomes the cycle of your life. And that's where the challenge comes in. I just want to share with our audience that there can be confusion between recognizing depression versus burnout. And Dr. Tracy Marks, a psychiatrist who does mental health videos on YouTube, who I hope will be a guest on the show next season. She talks about this in one of her pieces, and she says that burnout can be cured by a break or a vacation, a moment of recovery, that you do recover, whereas depression 
isn't really touched by a vacation. You might be lifted from it, but then you end up back in the same place or maybe even worse down the road. So just for people who are looking for the difference between burnout and depression, there is that. But what you're talking about, when you're talking about those neurotransmitters, that serotonin, that's obviously related to the treatment of depression. Serotonin, serotonin, what are they called? Serotonin something reuptake inhibitors. So that it remains in the bloodstream. It remains in the brain. At the the synapse, yes. That's what the aim is, to keep it in the synapse and not allow it to be taken up again. So it stops that uptake. Yeah, the removal from circulation, yes. and. So yes, if you want to carry on, that would be fabulous. Thank you. I'm glad that you mentioned that, Daniel, because it's a very important distinction. I think depression stems from burnout and adrenal exhaustion Mm -hmm. when women feel like they're not coping and they're not living up to that standard that they've set for themselves. So there is definitely research to show that perfectionists are more prone to things like adrenal exhaustion and burnout because We don't like to accept something that isn't perfect. We also like to strive and push until we feel we've reached perfection. And that was where the real conversation with myself got to the nitty gritty of it because I definitely can identify with that person, which is why it happened to me. So that distinction, it's important to know. And when you can definitely get better from adrenal exhaustion, but you have to always be on the lookout for falling into the same trap again because that's a personality tendency and I suppose that's just my psychology background that gives me that insight into that and of course my own personal experience (laughs) which taught me that I don't want to repeat that but it does mean that I'm now vigilant to that and then of course depression the more often you have depression the more likely you are to repeat the experience and that's because of the neural pathways and the behavior that we establish during those low periods those low mood periods but the other thing that I just touched on a little while ago was stability in the brain and that homeostasis one of the challenges that we have when we are driven and we ambitious and we focused on on big goals ticking all those boxes is that we don't always eat as well as we should because we're too busy chasing those dreams. And what happens with the brain is really a bit of a problem because we have no place in the brain to store energy. It's a finite place. Yes, We can't store anything in there. So we need to make sure that our blood glucose is stable. And when our blood glucose is stable, our thinking is stable and our mood is stable. So everything stems from keeping this blood glucose balanced because the minute, yeah, and it's an important point, and I think people miss this. So when our blood glucose dips, for example, let's just say we missed lunch because we were really busy. We had an important call and we missed lunch. But now mid-afternoon, that blood glucose has dipped. It doesn't just leave us feeling shaky and you know uncomfortable. Hangry, <laughs> absolutely. It doesn't just have those challenges. What actually happens is that adrenaline is released into the bloodstream the brain says, hey, you haven't had any food. I'm going to give you some adrenaline so that you can go and hunt it. (laughs) And so adrenaline kicks in, which is obviously we don't want to be perpetuating that stress response cycle. But the challenge then is that mostly what we gravitate towards is a highly processed food because we've learned over time that that will give us a quick spurt, a quick blood glucose lift. And so we get that quick blood glucose, but what happens? It dips again. And that's the challenge. So then we end up with this 
spiky blood glucose. And the more often that happens, the harder it is for our body to actually calibrate itself, our metabolism, our weight, our sleep, all of these aspects of our mental and physical well-being are impacted because of this blood glucose up and down. And of course, our brain function is also impacted. So it's got very long-reaching effects. Missing one meal can do that. And the more often you do it, obviously, the worse it gets. So keeping blood glucose stable is extremely important for long-term physical and mental well-being. So not only missing a meal, but choosing the wrong meal can have a repeat, like a, a knock-on effect. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a domino effect. And if we don't put our foot down and draw a line in the sand and say, I'm stopping this now, and I'm going to focus on you know making sure my food is as nutrient-dense as possible, it will just continue. And it leads to huge challenges because over time, the bigger the problem becomes, the bigger you have to deal with the problem. So yeah. it makes sense for people to prevent the problem. Obviously, if the problem is already well established, you can still make changes. It'll just take a little bit longer to make those changes. And I often say to people, if a problem has taken a couple of years to, to show itself, it's not going to disappear overnight. Yeah. And I think our society has said to us, oh, just swallow this pill. Just yeah. do this and it'll be gone. But it's not really as simple as that. And I think smart women know this. So yes. they'll understand. I would agree. So if you could just share with us, you've talked about the necessary nutrients. What are those and what are the best sources of those necessary nutrients in the modern diet? The nutrients that we require for brain function are many, but I'll focus on the ones specifically related to what we can easily get from our food. And we're talking about things like vitamin C, for example. Vitamin E, also extremely important for the brain. Vitamin A as well. The, the last two are fat-soluble. Vitamin C is water-soluble. So it's good to eat foods um, that you haven't cooked or very lightly steamed to get the vitamin C from them. Otherwise, you lose it in the water. I'm talking about very good, delicious salads with lots of good dressings. And just make a note, Daniel, to remind me to talk about why dressings are so important with veggies specifically. So that those are some of them. And then as far as nutrients go, we need zinc, we need magnesium. For example, magnesium is used in over 300 different enzyme reactions in the body. Wow. Extremely important. And zinc is used in just a few less than that. And we use up a lot of magnesium and zinc when we're stressed because they are used to make adrenaline and cortisol. And then we've got the B vitamins, extremely important for generating energy and also for making hormones and making neurotransmitters. And they all rest on the foundation of amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein. Now, this is protein from any source, whether you're getting the protein from broccoli or you're getting it from steak, whether you're getting it from quinoa or you're getting it from chicken. Obviously, more concentrated in animal products but still very much bioavailable in plant products as mm -hmm. long as you have enough of them to eat and enough of a variety. So those are some of the, the nutrients. Another one that a lot of women are deficient in is iron. Iron is actually the most common nutrient deficiency in the world. Wow. And it doesn't just depend on eating red meat. It depends on gut condition as well, whether you become iron deficient or not. So that is, those are, you know, 
some examples of some of the nutrients. And just for, for, for interest's sake, vitamin C is the most abundant nutrient or most abundant antioxidant in the brain and in the adrenal glands. We've got 15 times more vitamin C in those organs versus other tissues in the body. So we know that it's used in vast quantities. People always speak about vitamin C in relation to the immune system, immune functioning. That's not where it's actually the star key player. It's actually in the brain and the adrenal glands. Wow. So that's, that's something to keep in mind. That is. And I think all of us grew up believing that orange juice was a brilliant source of vitamin C. Is that still the truth or are there other sources that you would recommend? I think that orange juice, unfortunately, doesn't have any fiber in it. So the sugar in it, then even though it's natural sugar, does spark our blood glucose very quickly. So that's a challenge. And if it's been pasteurized, then a lot of that vitamin C has been damaged because of the heat. So I tell people to eat things like broccoli that's lightly steamed, things like capsicums, red pepper and, and green pepper, things like kiwi fruit, and things like raw citrus fruit, because they have the most vitamin C in them. And I also tell people, funnily enough, to use the rind of citrus if it's organic, because that's the highest concentration of antioxidants on the actual fruit. Really? Yes. So it's an interesting fact, isn't it? So I always, in, in my Instagram posts, I often put the rind of citrus into my recipes because I know that's where, you know, the antioxidant content is the highest. So that's something else to keep in mind. At a point in time when my nutrition was more on point, um, I was reminded by someone that boxed food, square food is not generally optimal food. And when you talk about eating raw oranges rather than processed orange juice, it's very much of that nature. Apples are not square. If it's square, <laughs> be suspicious. If it comes in a square, be suspicious. Or just like take it in moderation, put it that way. Yes. I, I really love that that square box analogy. I think that's really clever because that is the truth. Most processed food is processed and it, the goal of that food is to make sure that the manufacturer makes money because yes. it sits on the shelf. It needs to sit there for a long period of time. It's shelf stable, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a good idea. But yes, I do agree in moderation. I think what happens to a lot of people when they want to make a change, Danielle, and this is just me with my psychology hat on, they, they say, okay, never going to touch anything bad again. I'm only going to eat this way. And it's really hard to do something if you feel that you're deprived. Yes. Because you just can't sustain that behavior. The human brain doesn't like to feel it's missing out on anything. So that's a challenge. So I try and get people to realize that they don't have to be deprived. They can have that bad thing every now and again. But the sneaky thing that happens, which is another wonderful thing that the brain does, over time, you lose the taste for that food if you learn a few tricks. And one of the tricks is to always have good fat with your food because flavor molecules disperse in fat much more efficiently than they do in water. So when you have a salad, if you just eat it by itself, boring, maybe even with some cider vinegar on it and some salt, it will never taste as good as a salad made with a really great salad dressing with the right oil, because the oil allows all the flavors of those veggies to disperse beautifully in your mouth to give you mouthfeel 
which is a technical term and means that your whole mouth is experiencing that meal. So it'll help us get addicted to healthy eating. It does. It helps you get addicted to healthy eating. And my second book, the recipe book, the section on sauces and dressings is 25 pages long. It's the longest. Oh, I can't wait. (laughs) Because that's, that's that's the secret. Because if you have lovely dressings and sauces, you're really covering your food with the beautiful coating of extra flavor and then getting the flavor from the veggies as well. So I definitely suggest that people keep that in mind. It's a very important point. So I have two quick questions for you. First of all, I would love to hear your recommendations to women for great breakfast for themselves and anyone they're preparing breakfast for. And also I'm wondering, are there nutrients in herbs and spices? Okay, great question. Number one, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I know that there's a lot of discussion out there about intermittent fasting and skipping breakfast and so on. The evidence still suggests that breakfast is an important part of a meal, even if you don't eat it first thing. That first meal is very important because you have been on a fast overnight and the brain, as we've discussed, has nowhere to store energy. So that's the first point of breakfast. If you're a person that likes a sweetish breakfast, then one of my best breakfasts is a tablespoon of chia seeds with about half a cup of coconut milk with probably about, I'm trying to do this in my head. I normally just do it in my kitchen. I've got muscle memory for it. (laughs) Probably about a quarter cup of frozen raspberries all stirred together. Oh, wow. And then into that, I will maybe slice up uh, an apricot, a dried apricot or two, stir it into that. I'll put some pecan nuts or some cashew nuts, even some macadamia nuts, stir into that as well. And you can put a, a handful of muesli or a handful of granola on top of that. But I basically shake all of that up and I put it in the fridge. And the next morning, it's like dessert. It's oh, really wow. yummy. It's sweet. It's got a bit of chewiness in it. On top of that, I often put some Inca berries, which are very nutrient dense and they're a little bit sour and a little bit sweet and they're really nice to chew. And I may put some granola on top of that. And that's a really great, simple breakfast. You can chop up an apple into that as well, a pear, maybe half a banana and so on. So So what do those ingredients do for us? Those ingredients do a couple of things. They're all nutrient dense. They've got a lot of antioxidants in them. There's good fat in the nuts and in the chia seeds and in the coconut milk. They also keep our blood glucose stable because they've got good carbs in them with good fat and good protein. So that keeps us going for a number of hours. Some women whose metabolism is very fast, they may find that they are hungry at half past 11 or 12 and then they can eat again. Some women find that if they've bulked that up a little bit with a bit more fruit and maybe a little bit more granola or whatever, it can keep them going till one or two o'clock of that group because I just bulk it up with whatever I have. At the moment, I've got kiwi fruit. The pears are fantastic at this time of the year. We've got oh. great pawpaw. So I just chop it all up and, and, and make a mixture like that. I'm coming if, to your house for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> with pleasure. And I also make muffins every now and again. My mom loves muffins, so we'll make a nice batch of muffins. And um, I make them gluten-free and I make them vegan, so people who don't want any of those things can make them easily as well. And they're also delicious. And I make a special chocolate spread to put on them. So it's healthy, it's got chocolate, and it still does all those things for us. So it's, it, there's no deprivation on my watch, Danielle. 
is your basic muffin recipe in the cookbook? Yes, it is. And I'll so, be having that here soon. So I'll let you know how I dress it up. <laughs> excellent. I look forward to hearing that. And what um, about herbs and spices? Herbs and spices, good question. There's not a lot of research on this because it's really hard to figure out how to give enough herbs to a person to see if it's going to be of benefit. But what we know for sure is that turmeric, which is a spice, contains a compound called curcumin, which is a very potent antioxidant. And it's not really surprising because turmeric is bright yellow and it's also an anti-inflammatory um, spice. So that's really great. Uh, cinnamon has got some evidence to support that it may be good for blood glucose. I like the taste of cinnamon, so I put it onto food in any case, mostly breakfast. So I use that. As far as other spices go, I don't know of any other research about specific spices. I know black pepper has been reported to actually help with digestion and uh, people can adjust other spices according to what they enjoy. As far as herbs go, the green in the herbs is the key because it got, it's got a lot of um, chlorophyll in it. So that's great. And there may also be some magnesium in the greens, but you'd have to eat a bucket load of them to get enough <laughs> magnesium. But there is some evidence that coriander is really good at being a heavy metal. What's the right word? That it can help your body get rid of heavy metals. Okay. I don't know how robust that evidence is, but I like the taste of coriander or cilantro, as it's called in America. Yes. Yeah. So that's easy to, to toss through your food. Basil, also big leaf basil, if it's not cooked, it will also have some nutrients in it. I like using spices and herbs in cooking just because it elevates the flavor without having to add anything artificial. Again, wanting to addict us to that healthy pattern. Yes, absolutely. Wanting to get us entrained into that healthy way of eating. And then our taste buds change over time. We become much more accustomed to food that tastes fresh and that leaves us feeling good. And so we, over time, develop those habits. So that's a little bit of a clue about herbs and spices. For me, the evidence is obviously important, but I would never say to someone, go and eat a cup of basil leaves. It wouldn't be pleasant. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I put, I make, for example, with as far as green leaves go, on Sunday when I came back from the market, I made a pesto. And in the pesto was parsley, coriander, cilantro, and also rocket. And I put that together and I put lots of garlic and some activated almonds and some lemon rind and a squeeze of lemon. Delicious pesto. Magnificent. Sounds spectacular. That's terrific. So... These cook these recipes, did you find them here and there? Or did you develop them in your kitchen? Did you develop them with others? How did that happen? It basically happened that I needed to create food that want, that tasted delicious and I didn't want anyone to feel deprived because I started finding out about all of this when I had my daughter, as I said earlier. So I wanted to bring my children up so that they would never feel as if they were missing out. So I worked on the philosophy that it had to taste as similar to the bad stuff as possible. <laughs> For example, our, one of Australia's iconic foods are called lamingtons. And these are pieces of sponge cake that have been dipped into a chocolate sauce. So the cake sucks up the chocolate sauce and then they tossed into coconut. So I had <laughs> Sounds to... Sounds tasty. 
<laughs> Look, they taste absolutely delicious, but whether they're good for you is another question. But Sound I need, like it. <laughs> no, they're not. But I try to make them healthy because I wanted my children to have the iconic Australian treat at their birthday parties. Aww. And so my son was also, my son is gluten-free. So I had to make sure that they were gluten-free as well. And I had to make them good enough, Danielle, so that the other neighborhood kids didn't go, oh, this tastes odd. So that was like my barometer. How good can I make these taste? So no one says, hey, these are supposed to be healthy. So that you was, have eight-year-old critics. <laughs> I did. And they're the toughest critics. They really yes. are tough. So I used them for many of the recipes, especially the sweet treats. Because yes. For example, I have a, a very good friend and, and she became a friend when they were neighbors of ours and her children would come over and play at our house. And one day she said to me, why do my children eat broccoli in your house, but they won't eat broccoli in my house? <laughs> and I said, come over and see how I make a salad. And so she did. And then she saw that it wasn't boring old bland grayish broccoli. I always put a sauce out and a dip for the kids to dip their food into their love activity sets. And I'd give them lots of different, you know, things to try out. And so they did that and they ended up eating the broccoli without really focusing on the fact that it was broccoli. It was more of, a, of an activity. So we figured out how to get her kids to eat broccoli in her house. That's so I, fantastic. It just, it evolved, Daniel. It evolved. And so... <laughs> When I wrote my second book, my first book does have some recipes in it, but not a lot of recipes. It, it's more about the science of, of feeding the brain. The second book, I took the science and put it in the kitchen. So it doesn't have any heated oil and it doesn't have any refined sugar. And it's got a lot of fiber and a lot of nutrient-dense vegetables and so on because I wanted people to see how easy it was to take the science and actually action it in your own kitchen without spending hours there and without any complexity. It really is simple if you just have a few guidelines. I don't know if you can hear that. There's a gar garbage truck outside. <laughs> I can hear nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's wonderful. So what would you say for, say, a savory dinner? A savory dinner. Okay, let's think about that. It depends on what a person really enjoys. We, I can make in 15 minutes the best coconut beans ever. And that recipe is actually in my first book. So basically, I take an organic tomato garlic pasta sauce. I put it in a pot. I take um, some cooked cannellini or barlotti beans, drain them, put them in the pot, put coconut cream in the pot, chop up an onion, chop up some more extra garlic, simmer it for 15, 20 minutes. Fantastic, fantastic on nachos, on quinoa, on brown rice with a big bowl of guacamole. So that is the simplest, fastest meal to ever make. It I sounds awesome. <laughs> it is. It's delicious. And it became a staple in my house because when teenagers arrived, then I had to change the way I cooked again. <laughs> a lot more. <laughs> A whole lot more. And that was the staple. So my, my children would be playing outside. Their friends would go, what's at your house for lunch? And my son would say, I saw a big pot of coconut beans. And before you knew it, the whole neighborhood was there. So that was, <laughs> that was, and then the mums would say to me, what's that recipe? So then I shared yes. it with them. So all and, my and recipes. I, sorry, Daniel. No, I'm sorry. I was going to say it again. What are the benefits of eating those ingredients? 
the beans are full of fiber. They've also got great B um, vitamins in them. If you're serving them with corn, you're actually getting a complete protein because of the different amino acids that, that the two complement each other. The tomatoes are full of lycopene, which is a fantastic antioxidant. Cooked tomatoes contain more lycopene than raw tomatoes. And so I suggest that. Onions, great for sulfur and for gut health again. Great prebiotic, same as garlic. What is a prebiotic? Uh, a prebiotic is a food that good bacteria on the gut eat. Yeah. Okay. So, so you want to nourish those good bacteria in your gut and you do that by, what are other prebiotics? Because we've all really heard of probiotics. Absolutely. Most people haven't heard of prebiotics, so I will explain. Prebiotics, one of my favorite ones is artichokes, uh, Jerusalem artichokes, all the alum family. So everything in the onion family, great prebiotics, things like leeks as well, and anything that is got a lot of fiber in it. So for example, if you look at a broccoli and you look at the stem of a broccoli, most people cut the stem off and throw it away. I keep most of the stem, excepting the really hardest part at the bottom, and I chop it up finely, and I stir it into any grain that I'm using, like quinoa or rice or millet, and I just heat it up a little bit. And then that very dense form of fiber acts like a prebiotic in the gut, feeding the good bacteria, good gut bacteria. So prebiotics actually help you save money because you don't have to keep on buying probiotics because the good bacteria become very much healthier and more robust. Oh, that's fascinating. I had no idea. <laughs> so you were saying that cooked tomatoes have more antioxidants than raw tomatoes. And then I interrupted you to ask about prebiotics. The other ingredients in your coconut beans? Well, so the co what do they do? The coconut milk is really a good saturated fat and it's a great source of energy. So if you're really active and busy, the coconut cream doesn't just lend a great flavor. It's also a great form of energy. And whatever carb you choose to eat with that, whether it's nachos, whether it's millet, whether it's brown rice, those, those carbs actually also act like fuel for the brain and the body. But obviously, we like to choose ones that have got a lot of fiber in them. As far as the avocados go, avocados have got lots of good monounsaturated fat, which is good for us, and they contain a lot of other nutrients. A little bit of zinc, a little bit of magnesium. I like to also chop cilantro, coriander into that because that just gives me more greens. And I love Spanish onion in guacamole because that just takes it over that over the top. It just makes it fantastic. And that also, once again, prebiotic, good fiber. So that is, that's a meal that's a really a gut and brain friendly meal. It's fantastic to break down what sounds like just a standard gourmet fare at your house. My God, um, it, it, it's wonderful to break it down so that we understand just how it supports the body, how it supports our response to stress, how it supports our emotions, how it supports our ability to cope and to be more clear thinking and better responders and maybe more patient. Absolutely, Daniel. I think that the challenge is people don't really think about a meal as doing all of those things that you've just mentioned. I think we think of a meal as something that we have to get through, something that we've got to make just to satisfy our hunger. But it does a lot more than that. It goes on, as you suggested, in a domino effect, producing a stable mood, 
a clear thinking, creative thinking. And then that, that stretches on to making good decisions and then having good habits and then sleeping well and having more energy to move. And just being a nicer person generally, because you're not cranky anymore. You don't have those blood glucose ups and downs. So it's a beautiful, long-reaching effect, thinking about what meal you're going to eat. Mum laughs and she tells people that we eat scientifically in this house. <laughs> it still sounds delicious. <laughs> well, that, that was my barometer. It had to be delicious to tick all those boxes, but it yes. still had to do the other thing. So that's what <laughs> my whole goal was because I didn't want anyone to feel deprived. Oh, that's wonderful. Is there anything you wanted to share with our audience before we go? No, I've just thoroughly enjoyed talking to you and just talking about the this, this subject. So I think I, if I can just encourage people to think a little bit more clearly, the listeners, about the food that they're eating, is it nutrient-dense? Is it supporting this beautiful, sophisticated, greedy brain of ours so that we can live our best life? Because anyone listening to your podcast, Danielle, is obviously an ambitious woman. She's going places and she wants to get there sooner rather than later. And to be able to do that, she actually has to support herself at the cellular level. And that's the goal. Thank you for establishing this wonderful foundation for us. I really appreciate your coming on. And I encourage people to reach out to you if you have podcasts. Please consider Dr. McCabe as a guest. You can find her cookbooks at amazon.com, amazon.ca, amazon.co.uk, all the Amazons. Again, it's Feed Your Brain, Seven Steps to a Lighter, Brighter You and Feed Your Brain, the cookbook. I am delighted to have had a chance to meet you and talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Danielle, for the wonderful opportunity. I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you. So that's the show for today from TheAmbitiousWoman.com, your source of bold career, finance, and life advice. Visit TheAmbitiousWoman.com for bonuses, our upcoming killer career fireworks blueprint, guest links, and to learn about our sponsor, Unbound Women, who help women with gut issues and overwhelm live fulfilling lives. Warmest wishes for a fab day. See you next time.